Hi, everybody. This is John Allen, the editor of Crux. Welcome to Last Week in the Church, the show devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know. Except that this episode isn't really last week in the church. We skipped Monday in light of the Memorial Day holiday in the States. This is more like the last 10 days in the church. And as ever, there is a great deal to talk about. So here's what we've got for you today. Crime and punishment in the Catholic Church gets an overhaul. He's a pinball wizard. The Vatican joins the who. The Vatican's perennial PR problem pops up again. And finally, reflections on perhaps the greatest irony about Pope Francis of them all. That's what we've got on the other side, so please stick around. All right, before we get started today, since this show originates in Rome, in Italy, I owe you a hearty buona festa, buona festa della Repubblica today. This is basically Italy's July 4th. It's the Festival of the Republic. It commemorates the founding of the Italian Republic after the Second World War. And, and this particular one is a big one. It's the 75th anniversary of that happening uh, in 1946. Now, you know, you may think that if you're not Italian, that has nothing to do with you. You would be wrong, ladies and gentlemen. If you're Catholic, you have a stake in Il Bel Paese for centuries. Italy, the city of Rome, has been the vehicle in which the headquarters of Catholicism has grown. No country is more thoroughly permeated with Catholic culture than Italy. I mean, hell, you can get a graduate degree in church history simply by going to Italian restaurants and asking waiters to explain to you the origins of the various dishes you're having. I guarantee you they will conjure up some episode of significance in the history of the Catholic Church. The internal workings of the Vatican are ineradicably, inextricably Italian. There is a kind of genetic linkage between the, the, the fate of the Catholic Church and the destiny of this country. For good or ill, if Italy sneezes, the Vatican will catch cold and vice versa. And so on this day, we celebrate the sort of divine providence that put the world's, uh, in some ways, most artistic, most sensual, most romantic, most, I don't know, sacramental culture at the service of the world's most sacramental, uniquely sacramental church. All right, so we begin today with crime and punishment in the Catholic Church, specifically Book 6 of the Code of Canon Law, that is the penal section of the Code of Canon Law, having to do with crimes under the law of the Church and punishments for those crimes. In the 1983 revision of the Code of Canon Law, which was the last time there was such an overhaul, uh, it came in the wake of the Second Vatican Council. There was debate as to whether the Catholic Church even still needed a penal section of the code. There was this idea that crime and punishment somehow is not consistent with the spirit of a merciful, loving, forgiving God, and that that section of the code was somehow superannuated, that it was 
Medieval spoke of a time when the church was both a temporal and a spiritual power. Now, at the end of the day, a compromise solution was struck. There remained a penal section of the Code of Canon Law, but it was significantly transformed. And the most specific and, and consequential uh, element of that transformation was to leave vast discretion in the hands of bishops and other superiors in the church about what counted as a crime uh, and what sort of punishment was necessary for that crime. There was also a strong emphasis on the idea that punishment ought to be a last resort after everything else has been tried. If this is the only tool left in the toolbox, basically, if somebody puts a gun to your head and forces you to impose punishment, then okay, you can go ahead and do it. And in the years since, we all know where that led. That emphasis, on, well, that, that vagueness about what counts as crime, and that emphasis on avoiding punishment, if at all possible, helped produce the child sexual abuse scandal as we know it in the Catholic Church today. One of the major reasons that sexual abuse was not named clearly and firmly as a crime, one of the reasons that prosecutions were not more regularly launched for abusers in the church was precisely this spirit in the new code. So now, book six has been overhauled. Pope Francis has signed off on a sweeping revision of the revision, which adds greater specificity about a series of crimes, including crimes of sexual abuse, not simply against minor children, but also against vulnerable adults. Doesn't use the term vulnerable, but that's what it means. It adds new penalties, so people who commit crimes under the law of the church may be forced to pay restitution, may lose their salaries and pensions, uh, in addition to eventually potentially being excommunicated and other sorts of penalties, adds new procedural mechanisms to enforce these crimes. But perhaps the most significant change of all comes in the preface. In the 83 code in the penal section, it began by saying that bishops and other superiors in the church may impose the following punishments for the following crimes. Now, it says they must. Now, that's a change of only one word, but it is a dramatic, dramatic change in attitude. Honestly, the content of the law hasn't changed a great deal. Mostly what this does is write into the code changes that have already been made under Popes Benedict and Francis with regard to sexual abuse, financial crimes, and other things. But it does reflect an entirely different mentality. However, as with so many things, uh, when it comes to edicts issued from on high in the Vatican, the question isn't really, what does the new code say? The question is, how is it going to be applied and enforced? And what will be the consequences for bishops and other superiors who simply drop the ball? Uh, that's a question we can't answer today, but I would suggest to you it is really the only meaningful question to ask about this overhaul of the church's system of crime and punishment. All right. Second, he's a pinball wizard. The Vatican joins the WHO. Now, in this case, I am not talking about Roger Daltrey, 
Pete Townsend, and the rest of the famous rock band. Uh, I am instead talking about the World Health Organization, uh, which, of course, is the major international organization that oversees health care policy and administration. It has been much in the news over the last couple of years because, of course, it has been in a lead role when it comes to the fight against the COVID-19 virus. It has sort of set the tone in, what, in terms of what the appropriate preventive measures uh, should be, the appropriate sanitary measures. Also, uh, it has issued guidelines for the administration of vaccines and, and so on. It is an important global institution founded in the wake of the Second World War. Now, since the Second World War, the Vatican has always had a kind of informal relationship with the World Health Organization. But as of this week, in response to a measure submitted by none other, you guessed it, Italy, <laughs> which has always been the Vatican's ticket into the international arena, so this Italian resolution was adopted by the Plenary Assembly of the World Health Organization. And as of now, the Holy See is a, an official non-member permanent observer, which is the same status it has at the United Nations and other international bodies with the World Health Organization. Now, this is a culmination of decades of diplomacy. Uh, it also ratifies what has been a very close working relationship between the papacy of Pope Francis and the World Health Organization when it comes to COVID-19, Francis has, in effect, been the global chaplain of the kind of public health measures and precautions that the World Health Organization has been advocating and promoting. However, as with everything in the Catholic Church, because we are a 1.3 billion family of faith scattered in every nook and cranny of the planet, the, so the rising and setting of the sun is not uncontroversial in the Catholic Church, and so there is controversy about this as well. Uh, some of the more robust and, one might say, militant pro-life forces in the Church see the World Health Organization as the world's largest abortion research and advocacy organization. They see it as a bastion of pro-choice and abortion rights militancy and, and funding and pressure and activism, uh, they have always been uncomfortable with the Vatican cozying up to the WHO. And now that it has an official status there as a non-member permanent observer, some of these pro-life forces are warning that once again, the Vatican and Pope Francis are watering down the church's witness when it comes to the fight against abortion. This, ladies and gentlemen, is merely the latest chapter in a perennial uh, tug-of-war, if you like, between the Vatican and what you might consider activists and purists in the Catholic fold. Activists and purists want the Vatican to have nothing to do with organizations and individuals who represent values and ideas contrary to Catholic teaching. The Vatican's position always has been that if we are going to talk only to the purists, that will be a very short and small conversation, that we have to build bridges and be in dialogue even with people who disagree with us. Uh, the Vatican takes, takes that position when it comes to China. It takes that position when it comes to Russia. It takes that position when it comes to the UN or anybody else that somebody might have an ax to grind with, and it is now taking that position with the World Health Organization. 
All I know is I now have the chance on my radio show this week to play Pinball Wizard, and I personally am grateful to the Vatican's diplomatic apparatus for creating that opportunity. All right, third, the Vatican's perennial PR problem pops up again. So Vatican Communications has had a bad week, bad 10 days, uh, I think we can say. So at the beginning of last week, Pope Francis made a visit to the Dicastery for Communications. Now think about it. These are the Vatican's paid professional communicators. These are the people whose job it is to raise the Vatican's profile internationally and to tell its story to the world. So you would think the Pope's visit to the, that dicastery uh, would be like the equivalent of cats, you know? It would be a carefully choreographed, live-streamed, high-production-value event that can really showcase the Pope's message and show what that comms dicastery can do. What happened? There was a blackout, okay? There was no live stream. There was no radio broadcast. The only thing we got in real time were certain Vatican communications personnel who were kind of live tweeting the thing, but they were flying by the seat of the pants. There was no coordinated communication strategy here. Now, admittedly, after the fact, we did get a transcript that included the exchange between Pope Francis and the communicators, but everybody knows reading a transcript of a conversation is not the same thing as being in the room, and in any event, this was manna from heaven from a communications point of view, and it went fundamentally unexploited. Okay, so that was case one of dropping the ball. Now, a couple days later, Pope Francis sat down with the plenary assembly of the Italian Bishops' Conference. This is always a highly anticipated event. He has a kind of freewheeling Q&A with the bishops at the beginning. We in the Vatican Press Corps were told that we were going to be getting a live stream of that session from 4 to 5.30 in the afternoon. We tuned in at 4 o'clock. What we heard was the Pope saying, are there any journalists in the room? The president of the Italian Bishops' Conference, Cardinal uh, Galtiero Bassetti, said, no, I don't think so. The Pope responded, good, so we can speak freely. The live stream dropped, and that was the last we heard of it. Now, if you want a private conversation, great, but don't promise reporters a live stream. And if you promise reporters a live stream, don't drop it three minutes in. Uh, so anyway, that was faux pas number two. Uh, number three, the Vatican Press Office last week issued a statement announcing that the pre-seminary of St. Pius X was going to be moving off Vatican grounds to a new undisclosed location and communicating Pope Francis's thanks for its many years of loyal service on the grounds of the Vatican, supplying altar servers for liturgies in St. Peter's Basilica. That's fine, as far as it goes, but you know what the statement didn't contain? Any acknowledgement that the pre-seminary of St. Pius X is currently at the center of an extraordinarily controversial sex abuse trial uh, in the Vatican Tribunal uh, that has raised all kinds of questions about how a sort of hypersexualized environment could have grown up in this, in this pre-seminary, which is what the testimony has indicated, uh, under the eyes of Vatican overseers for decades. Uh, now, 
undoubtedly what's happening here is the Vatican thinks that having this on Vatican grounds was a bad idea. It confused who was in charge. Better to move it off, have a clear entity in charge that can be held accountable for such breakdowns. Fine, but say that, okay? To pretend that there's nothing to see here when you're the one who has convened this trial and invited reporters to cover it is just, frankly, silly. Okay, uh, so at the end of all this, what it reminds us is that despite all the alleged reforms uh, and despite a, the largest payroll in the Vatican, despite resources that are virtually incalculable, communicating on behalf of the Vatican continues to be a somewhat checkered exercise. All right, finally this week, greatest irony of all about Pope Francis. We already knew that Pope Francis is a pope of ironies. This is a pope who promotes decentralization in the life of the church, yet in many ways governs through command and control. He's very comfortable making decisions himself without really consulting anyone. This is a pope who came into office talking about how he wasn't going to travel, yet has turned out to be a very inveterate traveler. This is a pope whose greatest soundbite, most famous soundbite, is who am I to judge, yet is very comfortable issuing judgments himself. Listen to when he talks about the evils of free market global capitalism. You would think you're listening to Jeremiah in the Old Testament. But here's arguably the greatest irony of them all. This is a pope who routinely denounces legalism and legalists. He talks about fussy legalism as kind of the greatest betrayal and distortion of the spirit of a loving, merciful, and tender God. This is a pope who talks about the doctors of the law as sort of public enemy number one. They are his bete noir, his foil. And yet, no pope in recent memory has been more comfortable creating and amending law than Pope Francis. John Paul, in almost 27 years on the throne of Peter, issued 25 motu proprio. Those are one-off changes to church law on the Pope's personal authority. Pope Francis hasn't even been in office nine years. He's issued 34. Uh, he has also issued a series of apostolic constitutions and other uh, vehicles that create changes to church law. And now he has overhauled the code of canon law, the, the collection of law that is the most authoritative legal instrument in the life of the church. How do you explain this irony? Well, on the one hand, you could say that a reforming pope has to be a legislator. He has to change the law. Pope Francis came into office to shake things up. One of the ways you do that is by changing law. Yet, on the other hand, you could also argue that Pope Francis has to understand that ultimately the, the realities in the church are framed much more by culture than by law. Therefore, why the obsessiveness with law? Why not work on changing the culture and then let the law catch up to the new reality you're creating? I'm not sure there really is a coherent logical explanation of this irony. I sat down recently with a senior Vatican official who was one of the Vatican's top guys on church law. And I asked him for, if he had noted this irony, he, he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and said, don't think I haven't asked myself this question. And so I said, all right, how do you explain it? And his answer was, it's complicated. Yeah, 
It's complicated. Maybe the best answer is this. Let us invoke Walt Whitman to close this show. Walt Whitman once famously wrote, I contradict myself very well then. I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. Perhaps when it comes time to write the final judgment on Pope Francis, that ought to be somewhere near the lead. This was a pope who was vast who contained multitudes. That's our show for this week. I remind you, if you liked last week in the church, please go online, give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet. Go on the social media platform of your choice and make disciples of all the nations. I also remind you that you can find full coverage of everything we've talked about on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be back next week at the same bat time, same bat channel on Monday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed time, and enjoy the Festa della Repubblica today. Give a thought and a prayer for Il Bel Paese. We'll see you again soon.